Have you ever had an experience that hit your senses so heavily that you were forever changed? You saw something so beautiful. You heard a sound that brought you to your knees where you, like Isaiah, wanted to cry out, I'm undone. Have you ever had one of those experiences? My mind immediately floods with many, many different experiences I've had in the mission field, in church. I think of the first time I saw my wife down the aisle in her white wedding dress and I was undone. I think of the first time I heard my son, John, my firstborn, cry and I whimpered because I was brought to my knees. One memory, though, sticks out to me in a lot of different ways. When I was 12 years old, My family took us to Yosemite to hike through the high country over 10 days. It was a wonderful, wonderful trip. And the first night where we were staying uh, was this place that I I can never even uh, describe, but I'm going to try. It was a place called Tuolumne Meadows. Have any of you ever been there, Tuolumne Meadows? Tuolumne Meadows is in the high country of Yosemite. And that first night, I was sitting on this giant rock where we put our tent, and I was looking off, and Across the way, it was one giant meadow, but down the middle of the meadow wove a stream that was crystal clear. You know what I'm talking about if you've been in the mountains, right? And it just very slowly curved through the valley, over across towards the mountains. And the mountains in the distance, they looked almost as if God had reached his hand down and plucked up a bit of sand and pulled it up. They were just spectacular. The most amazing thing as I was sitting there was that the sun was setting and The oranges and the pinks and the purples, they made it so that you couldn't tell where earth ended and heaven began. You know what I'm talking about. And I remember sitting there even at 12 years old and having this understanding, this experience in that moment. I wouldn't call it spiritual per se. It was just an acknowledgement. I thought to myself, what a wonderful creator. It was later that year that at a Billy Graham crusade, I truly understood the gospel for the first time, and I think that I would not have gone down front and professed Jesus if I had not had that experience earlier in the year of understanding the creation and the wonder of God. Each of these experiences and the experiences that you think of probably have changed you forever. They've changed me forever. And these physical experiences can only reach so far. Today, Isaiah is going to take us through a heavenly experience, a vision of God himself seated upon the throne, and he will forever be changed. And we're going to walk through that with him today, and my hope for us today is that we, as we take part as witnesses in this vision, is that we will catch, each one of you in here will catch a fresh vision of the king this morning. Now, before we jump in, we must remember the background of the nation of Judah. It was a nation devoid of heart, devoid of morals, devoid of his justice and his righteousness, yet full of themselves in terms of religious tradition and arrogance. They were a people that served themselves so much so and had confused their idea of God so much so that they actually were hardening themselves against God. Even their ruler, the king Uzziah, the king of Judah, was arrogant in his response to God. During his reign, Judah had become massively, massively prosperous and powerful. He was a wonderful king in the eyes of the historians. 
But prosperity that confirms one's arrogance can be as much a sign of judgment as it can be a blessing. And he, like the nation, had become so arrogant in their view of God that he believed obedience was not necessary any longer, and he did as he wished. You can write down these couple of addresses. I'm going to go through and show some verses on the board just for the sake of time today. But here's the first one, 2 Kings 15, 3 through 4. And he, Uzziah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Yes, he started off right. That's good. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, nevertheless, the high places, the places where they worshiped pagan gods, were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Uzziah was passionate about Yahweh, but not so passionate that he would upset anyone else. He took the political correct route to leave those places of worship, leave those alone. Another one that speaks of him is in 2 Chronicles 26.5. It says that he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. This is good. Good job, Uzziah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought God, God made him prosper. But just shortly thereafter, in the story of Uzziah, 2 Chronicles 26.16 says, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He was so disobedient, blatantly disobedient, that he went into the temple to put incense on, a job that was only for the priests, and 85 priests met him. It's a wall of priests, folks. And they said, do not do this. You are being disobedient. And he said... I don't care. And suddenly the Lord turned him leprous. They booted him out of the temple and he lived in isolation the rest of his life, far away from God in stubborn rebellion. He started out so well. But by the end, his arrogance had secured his destruction. Half-hearted obedience in the midst of prosperity was a lethal mix for the kingdom of Judah. What they needed so very badly was a fresh vision of the king. You see, out of this rebellious kingdom of Judah, God calls Isaiah, and he commissions him to take a very special message to the people. Let's take a look. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, the seraphim covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. He gives us a timeline here. He starts at the beginning with a simple statement of this is when this vision occurred. You can write down if you want, 740 B.C. This is about the time that most people believe he started his ministry. This was the first time that he was actually brought into the scene as a prophet. So Hans, what was up with chapters 1 through 5? Those were simply an introduction that he had edited and put before his actual calling. This was the beginning of his ministry. 
But Isaiah, in his narration, quickly moves past the date and says, no, pay attention to something here. Pay attention to what? The glory of God Himself. We imagine the throne room of God. And these verses help us to see in our mind's eye where Isaiah is regarding the king. You see, the temple that Solomon built was a massive, wondrous building. And the language here is used very specifically to say this was a temple. Isaiah's temple that he imagined was probably very similar to the one in Jerusalem, 200 feet high, 10 stories high, in that day unimaginable. The doors that opened, massive doors, were probably 10 stories high. And you can imagine Isaiah in his vision standing before the throne room of heaven, this temple in which God sits. And the doors slightly open and he sees in the distance something, but he can't make it out. All he can see is that the whole temple is filled with the robe of the king seated on the throne. And above him, there are two beings. The word seraph in the Hebrew means a flame. These were not angels, you know, with their, right, (laughs) pot bellies and their little arrows. These were flames of fire, and their wings themselves were most likely flames of fire. And with two, they covered their eyes because God is too holy to look at, and it doesn't matter because with their ears, they would hear His commands. They covered their feet because they do not go anywhere unless the Lord orders it. And with two, they uh, they, they flew with constant movement ready and willing to be commanded. We see here a number of things about the glory of God. First, you can write down God's preeminence, that He is above all things, high and lifted up above all things. Oh, do we make Him that priority in our lives? Is the Lord the highest priority of our lives, our time, our talents, our treasure, our very motivation to get up in the morning. Is he high and lifted up? See, God himself is kept out of sight, but we see the massive train of God, the kingly robe filling the temple. And the word here specifically is not actually his train. In the Hebrew, it's the hem of his garment. He is so massive that even just the hem of his garment fills the temple. Secondly, we see God's power. These two beings above God, they're powerful beings. They're on fire, right? In our day, they would be made into massive comic book superheroes. They're that powerful. They're on fire. Six wings, can you imagine? And they wait for his command. He's powerful. Thirdly, we see God's reach. Not only does it say God's train fills the temple, it said God's glory fills the earth and God's house is filled with smoke. What is God's reach? To the bottoms of the ocean, to the ends of the universe, to the depths of your heart. His reach is everywhere. There is no oppression that he does not see, no hurt that he does not weep over, no cry that he does not come to the rescue. It just may not be in our time. God's reach is massive. Even the domain of our own hearts and minds and wills are His to govern. Lastly, we see God's holiness. Do I even need to tell you where I get this one from? Holy. 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 
You see, in Hebrew, they would repeat things twice to make them important. Three times, forget about it. This is Isaiah saying, guys, I can't even come up with words that show how set apart from us he is because he is so perfect. Isaiah uses language here that would remind the Jews in great detail of how holy God is. Look at verse 4 specifically. The foundations of the thresholds. Remember, Isaiah is standing outside the temple looking in through smoke. And the doorway, the threshold of the doorway is shaking. God's voice is being heard, but Isaiah can't understand it. And it's shaking the doorposts and the house is filled with smoke. And this smoke is so powerful that it keeps him outside. Now why, we'll see in a second. But a Jew reading this who understands the Old Testament would understand immediately what he's trying to portray. This is the God of Exodus, the God of Genesis, and for us, the God that stands in the same throne room, sits on the same throne in Revelation. Let me show you a couple other verses here. Exodus nineteen eighteen. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. The presence of God makes the mountain tremble. It's the same God. Let me show you this one here. Second Chronicles 7. This is when Solomon is dedicating the temple on earth. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. The same story in the book of 2 Kings tells us it's because it was smoke that showed the glory of God. To the Jews, they would have heard Isaiah speaking this, and they would have thought, he's standing before Adonai, the great Lord, Yahweh, the one that freed us from slavery, the one that came down on the mountain. He would have seen a vision of the king's glory. And this is the first thing he sees. This is the most important part. A vision of the king's glory. This is your answer to everything, guys. How do I get out of sin? See the vision of God's glory. How do I press in and know Jesus more? Understand the vision of God's glory. How do I heal my marriage? Understand God's glory. How do I deal with this broken relationship, friendship, understand God's glory? When you come before a vision of God seated upon the throne, all those little things in life that seem so massive in the moment, they disappear, and you know one thing and one thing alone, I will submit to him. And see, Isaiah had received a fresh vision of the king. So let's look at his response now. In Isaiah 6, 5, what did he do? Isaiah said, I said, he says, woe is me. Now, just to lighten the mood a little bit here, what he says here is, oy vey. <laughs> In Hebrew, it's oily, literally, oily. In Yiddish, it's oy vey. Okay? Now you know, if you say oy vey, you're going, woe is me, right? Not doesn't actually fit the context anymore, does it? Right? I used to use it all the time. I thought, yeah, no, oy vey doesn't work anymore. 
Oh, Eli, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Not only does Isaiah have a vision of the king's glory, but he has a vision of the king's amazing grace. A vision of the king's amazing grace. See, we miss the intent of the author here if we're not careful. We look at Isaiah having preached through the first five chapters and we think, oh yeah, he's just having a little bit of, uh, you know, a problem with his conscience here. No, this is the start of his ministry. He had not been a prophet for God yet. And God brings him to his throne room in a vision and he stands before God and he sees a holy God. And I want you to notice a couple of things. This awe-inspiring sight makes him respond. First, we saw... Isaiah's inability to hear God. Verse 4 says that he knew there was a voice of him who called, but notice he cannot understand what it says. He so badly wants to hear it, but he cannot. If you do not sit under submission to the king, guys, you may hear the voice of God, but you will not understand it. Your world may quake and shake, and you know that there is a booming voice of the Most Holy God, but you will not understand it. You're too impure, too unclean, like Isaiah. Secondly, we see Isaiah's inability to approach God, not only his inability to hear God, but his inability to approach God. He wants to go in. You can almost see him putting his arms up, bracing himself against the smoke that's pummeling out of the doorway against him. And he wants to go in, but he couldn't even find God if he wanted to. The house was filled with smoke, and no matter how hard he tried, that passing glance of God's glory is gone, and there is an impassable distance between him and the most holy king. He cannot make it. His sin has to be dealt with. There must be something or else he will stay at a distance from that king for all eternity, and Isaiah knows it. And to the Israelites, they would have understood this language. They would have understood this exact story because their starting quarterback, the best of the best, Moses, went through the same exact thing. Why don't you turn with me to Exodus 40? Exodus 40, and take a look at verse 34. Right at the end of Exodus, you should be starting Leviticus basically on the next page. They've just gone through all of this work to build the tabernacle. God had given them the blueprints. And what was the point of the tabernacle, guys? It was so God dwelt among his people. Nothing they earned, nothing they deserved. God dwelt among his people. So imagine it here. All the people surrounding, you got this nice new North Face tent, right? Okay. Everybody's ready to go in and start camping. Okay? I'm being facetious. 
This beautiful tent that all the symbolism of it was wrapped up in the Garden of Eden and God's holiness and the knowledge that they can't enter in. And they're sitting there and they're so close to God. They see his glory. They see the light and the smoke and the pillar of fire. And yet it's impossible to get near him. How many people feel like that? They see and hear the story and gospel of Jesus. They don't know how to get there and they know it's an impassable distance and they wait but we'll send Moses in. That'll fix it, right? So it says, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled in on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, we love the next verses, right? They had this cool pillar of fire and this cloud and it led him through the wilderness. That's great. God led him through the wilderness. Don't gloss over 34 and 35. What is it saying? Moses himself was so unclean, he could not come into God's presence. Uh-oh. We got God's presence. He fought against the Egyptians. He's right here in the middle of our camp and we can't get it. Oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine having it so close? I can't tell you the number of times that I lost basketball games sitting there, the free throw line, the last second. I know I'm going to win it. And clink, clink, bonk, 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 bonk. Oh, I was so close and yet so very far. That's a horrible metaphor compared to the glory of God. But really, folks, how terrible would this have been? I went up on the mountain. I got the laws. I came down. I even smashed them. I yelled at the people. We had to go through all sorts of garbage, and now we can't even get there. Enter Leviticus 1. Why does it start the way it does? Right into the sacrifice? Because the sacrifice was needed for cleansing. The Lord called to Moses, Leviticus 1.1, and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Why would they do that? Because without the sacrifice, there is no relationship. And they know this. So what is this thing that they must do? If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. In other words, perfect. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meaning that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Well, that's cute. It's a petting zoo. No, he's not petting it. He is saying, all of my sin and impurity is on this animal. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. Who should? The person who brought it. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that, it, that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put the fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons of the priests shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to God. You see, why did they need to do this? Because this shows the weightiness of sin. To every husband in here, if every time 
You spoke unlovingly to your wife. You had to take your family dog and slit its throat in order to show the weightiness of sin. Do you think you'd stop speaking unlovingly to your wife? You laugh, but I'm dead serious. That is the weightiness of sin. Hans, that's terrible. We got to call, who's the, PETA, right? No, this is why there was a sacrifice. I sinned against God and against man. Here is the livestock that I have spent most of my life raising. It is costly. Do you know how much a cow cost back then? And here's how badly God views my sin. Let me put it in American terms. If you had to give me $1,000 every time you sinned, do you think you'd stop sinning? See, the problem today is that we don't view sin as costly. We don't view it as weighty. We go to the person and we say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then they feel bad and they go, oh, okay, I guess I'll forgive you. Meanwhile, bitterness sits. And the problem is never dealt with because the sin is never repented from. And the person who is to be forgiving, they can't hold them accountable because sin isn't weighty anymore. We've lost the heaviness of sin in our society and in the church. And one of the main reasons so many of us feel as though we're losing the fight against our flesh is because we don't believe sin to be that big of a deal. I could list off sin after sin after sin in my own life or that I deal with as a pastor, but when someone comes in and they throw it before me and say, what does the Bible think about this? I know, you know, I mean, I know God's not for it, but I kind of want to do it, so... Oh, if only I could say, can you give me your prize heifer? (laughs) Slit its throat. Do you think they'd catch the weightiness of their sin at that point? See, this is the problem, is that Isaiah had weightiness of sin. And he knew that it wasn't only just wrong, it was foul and putrid to the senses of God. foul and putrid to the senses of God. You can tell here that he is using his senses to see and experience the glory of God, but the reason the smoke forces him away from God's presence is because his sin is foul and putrid to a most holy God. And so he knows that he needs help. And it is in the midst of this understanding, he falls to his knees He doesn't say some amazing prayer. He literally says, Oily, woe is me. I must remain silent. I can't say anything to someone this holy. I'm undone. And that heart change alone compelled the loving, compassionate heart of this amazingly holy king to say, I want to atone for him. And in that instant, In that instant of confession, atonement is made. This is how willing and ready God is to forgive and atone for our sin. This is how much he loves us. He does not glory in judgment. He says, I want that none should perish. Turn and live. And in that instant, atonement is brought. Why is it taken from the altar? The word in the Hebrew is misbeach. It means place of sacrifice. This is the sacrificial altar in heaven that the Lamb, Jesus himself, who we will see is this king, actually places him on by his free will 
to be the sacrifice. It was symbolic. Why does he bring it to touch his lips? Well, Jesus himself said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This process is symbolism to say, I have cleansed your heart because you have spoken the truth. For if the heart is softened, atonement is made. If you are not already hardened in your rebellion against God. Just like Isaiah, this will be your repentant, humble response to a fresh vision of the king. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The reason that I take this verse so seriously is because we've turned it into a formula. I said with my mouth, I raised my hand. No, this verse is talking about Isaiah's change of heart. If you believe in your heart that you are undone and impure away from a holy God, not because he wants it, but because you have chosen it by your rebellion, and you confess that he in his loving kindness gave of himself to die on the cross as the sacrifice, to purify you, to allow you into the presence of God, you will be saved. There's a weightiness to this idea. And Jesus would become the sacrificial lamb offered upon the cross of Calvary for you and for me, the very lamb that would die to purify us from our sin. And the question is today, do you feel like you even need that? If you're a believer in here and you say, well, I already did. No, no, no. Every moment of every day you plead the blood of the Lamb. Yes, you are a sinner that has been made a saint and you are holy in the eyes of God. But I can't tell you how many mornings I wake up and look at my beautiful wife and go, thank you for marrying me. I don't know why you did, but thank you for allowing me into your presence and she is a sinner just like me. How much more should I wake up in the morning and go, You have led me into your presence. Oh, you are a holy, amazing, wonderful, wonderful king. God is waiting and ready for each one of us in here to cry out and say, I am undone. My foulness of sin has separated me from your holy presence. Cleanse me, God. Search me and know me and cleanse me. When we cry out to God with true repentance, he doesn't wait. He hears us and he answers And he answers with atonement. But if you are not undone, broken, and humbled when you come face to face with the holiness of God, then there is a problem. Turn back with me to Isaiah 6, 8. Isaiah 6, 8. Isaiah has now been brought into the presence of the Lord because he's been atoned for. There is this knowledge in the Jews that Once your sin is atoned for, you can have the presence of God present in your life. And so Isaiah has now moved from the outside of the temple into the very courtroom of heaven, and he stands before the Lord, ready to receive his commission. Is that not cool? Oh, man, to be in that place and stand there and say, Lord, what is your mission for me? Oh, wait. He's done that for each and every one of us. Those of us that follow Jesus, he has cleansed us, not by our own works, but by his grace. And he said, now it's time to send you. Notice what he does. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, notice how he can hear now. 
Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. You see, now that his sins have been atoned for, the price has been paid, Isaiah can hear the call. And God says, who will go and spread my message? Now we immediately go, yes, he's about to give him the message of the gospel because the gospel is good news. It is if you accept it. But see, what we have to understand is when God is seated upon a throne in the Bible, it's very rarely for anything other than judgment. He is speaking in a place of judgment right now to Isaiah, saying, you are my messenger, not of grace, but of judgment. You see, the gospel can be both. It can either be complete and utter grace for those who repent under its heaviness, or it can be complete damnation to those who push it aside and refuse it. He says, and he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, Isaiah, and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. You see, Isaiah has seen a vision of God's glory and a vision of his amazing grace, but now he sees the king's message of judgment. He sees the king's message of judgment. Now, a question for you. He started his ministry in the year 740 B.C. We know that Assyria would not attack and do the things stated until, uh, of verses 10 and 11 and 12 until 701 B.C. Do the math, 740 minus 701. How many years? Isaiah, I want you to go preach the same message for 39 years and no one will repent. They will all hate you. Sounds like church planning. <laughs> 39 years he had to go do this. And you might look at this and you might go, what a terrible God. He doesn't want them to turn and be healed? No, guys. He says throughout his word, turn and be healed. These people were his people. So you've got to remember, the Bible is written not to non-believers. It's written to believers. And these believers from Isaiah 1 through Isaiah 5 had spent so much time hearing the word and not actually playing it out, that God went, no, they're hardened. And they have passed the point of no return, so here's what you're going to do, Isaiah. You're going to go and you're going to keep speaking that same gracious good news to them every day. Why? Because if they continue to refuse it, when they stand before God one day, they will have to say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. You see, the gospel is either going to compel you towards Christ or harden you away from him. And this is the point. He did not have the gospel truth of Jesus at this point. That was to come in the future. But he had the good news of the king seated upon the throne. And we may imagine Isaiah saying at the beginning of this, Great Lord, send me. I'll spark a revival. Thousands will come to know you. We'll revitalize Israel, right? But in the midst of their apathy, combined with their prosperity, the good news of the gracious king was meant not for mercy and judgment, but it was meant for judgment. Or, excuse me, mercy and justice, but it was meant for judgment. 
God's statement of gracious love and mercy will harden them further against him until all is destroyed in the midst of the land. Now, how could this be? We say, well, think of the story of Pharaoh in Exodus. Ten times it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And ten times it says, so God assisted him. The gospel is not meant to be trifled with. It's not meant to be thought over. It's not meant to be tried out for 30 days and then get a money-back guarantee at the end of it. It is meant to repent towards it or be hardened by it. Think of Romans 1. Sin and more sin and more sin. So God gave them up to the lusts of their heart. God gave them up to a depraved mind. God will assist us. He is our co-laborer, and he will assist us in the direction we're going. Do not harden your heart. Instead, grab a fresh vision of the king. Now, we're all Christians sitting here on a Sunday taking time in the morning, and I, I know that many of you in here, you hear this and you say, I'm still stuck on that glory part. I'm still looking at the glory and the atonement of Jesus, the gracious offer. That is why I follow Jesus. And for you, the rest of this seems crazy. But there's probably some of you in here today that say, good thing this isn't me. I'm here. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for most of my life. But again, look at what Isaiah says. We should be used to this now after six chapters of him doing the same thing. He brings you in and then slams you saying, check your heart. And notice here in verse 10, the small chiasm. We covered chiasms a few weeks ago. It's a circular logic that points you towards the center, okay? And notice in verse 10, he first talks about their heart, then their ears, then their eyes. And then he talks again about their eyes, their ears, and their heart. And he's saying, what do you see? Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. What do you see? The words used here in the Hebrew say that their hearts became fat, lazy, apathetic. Their ears were heavy, kind of useless, didn't use them anymore. And they became complacent in the midst of seeing God's work right before their very eyes. Woe is me. To put Jesus Christ on the back burner is to ask for a hardening of heart. Their vision of God had become commonplace, lethargic, calloused. We'll give to him if we want. We'll spend time with his people if we want. We've got better things to do. There's always going to be something better to do. Oh, how badly we need a fresh vision of the king. For those that are rebellious, the good news of God's gracious love and call to repentance Repentance is no longer good news. It becomes a death sentence. In fact, I would say to anyone here today that does not put Jesus in the proper priority, flee and never come back. By every Sunday coming and listening to the gospel message and eating of his body and his blood, you are bringing judgment upon yourself unless you repent and submit to the holiness of Jesus Christ. America must wake up. We, we can no longer, we can no longer be apathetic because to the world, they see it not as apathetic, but pathetic. There is no hope in our gospel when we put Jesus on the back burner. But even here, even here, 
God presents us with a small glimpse of his light. Even in the darkness of seeing this hardness of heart that we might even see as a reflection of ourselves, we look and see what he says in verse 13, and I am so thankful for his grace. And though a tenth remain in it, even after all the destruction is done, he says, it will be burned again, speaking of Babylon coming in and destroying it yet a second time, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Have you ever been in the midst of a forest that's been burned to the ground? It is one of the most depressing slaughter grounds you will find. There's death everywhere, but if you're in one of those forests at the right time of year, with enough time passed since the fire, you might be lucky enough to see where a seed is lodged in the middle of a burnt-out stump, and out of it is coming a small branch. And you see on that small branch, green. In the midst of darkness and black and burnt, what you see is you see life. This is the message that Isaiah is giving. Even though there might be hardness of heart and rebellion, even though 90% of the people will be taken to destruction, God has reserved a remnant of his people. Because you see, the God that we serve, his specialty is taking death and turning it to life. Taking judgment and bringing mercy and grace into the midst. And it's from that small branch you know that there is hope. God will not back off of his covenant faithfulness to his people. God will use this 10%, this small remnant, to produce a fruitful tree. Who is that holy seed? It is the same seed that's been talked of since Genesis. There in the curse, he says, your seed, Zerah in the, in the Hebrew, your offspring, Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. It's the same word here. The holy seed, Zerah, is its stump. It's the same word that's used throughout the Bible, but let's take a look here to John 12. To John 12. And we'll see John tell us exactly who's seated upon the throne and who the sacrifice on the altar is and who that holy seed is. John 12, and we're going to read verses 27 through 41. John 12, 27 through 41. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, Jesus said, when I am lifted up, notice the wording, lifted up, exalted from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He has a double meaning there. Not only the cross that John's going to tell us, but lifted up as the great king. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, the anointed king. Remember, Christ means anointed king, remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Now pause here for a second. We think, well, that's Jesus. That's one of his names. No, what they're referring to as Jews here is this. You can write this down. The king's faithful promise. Just as I, the king of Isaiah's prophecy speaks a faithful promise, another prophet came along named Daniel. 
in the midst of the Babylonian exile. This was a man who wrote between Isaiah and Jesus. But here's what he wrote, and this is a faithful promise. He said this. Go back one for me, Michael. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This son of man that would come, he would be the king, and these people asking Jesus, are you the Christ? Who is the Christ? Who is the son of man? They're asking Who's ruling and reigning on the throne? Who is the king? So Jesus says to them, back in John, verse 35, chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus says to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, right out of our text today, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Spoke of who? Jesus Christ. The king seated upon the throne is Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world is Jesus Christ. The holy seed that is the hope of all mankind is Jesus Christ. Who are we here to worship today? Jesus, the anointed Messiah, the Christ, the king. He deserves no less than our highest priority. It was when Isaiah had caught a vision of the king, a vision of his glory, and understood his amazing grace in the midst of his own foul sin that his life changed forever. And he stepped out in faith at that point to participate in the mission of God. And my prayer for us today, my prayer for you, for each and every one of you in this place today, is that that can be you, that you can claim a new and fresh vision of the King in all his holiness and his grace that you see him as your king above your own desires, your own wants, your own idea of what life should look like, and that you seat him on the throne of your life, the king that was and is and will be coming. For those that are in blatant sin against him, today is the day of repentance. Do not wait one more day. And the reason is, is that one more day of hardness of heart could tip you over the edge into judgment, not mercy or grace. Hans, I thought he was the God of a thousand chances that will give me until my deathbed. No. No, this text today tells us that is not the case. If you harden yourself against the gospel, hoping that one day it will suddenly kick in and feel right, it will not happen that way. It takes your repentance and confession to him that you need his atonement. Do not continue in the hardness of your heart. You are pulling down judgment upon your own head. But for those of you that have confessed your sin and called out to him for his gracious atonement, I pray that you would take on the commission just as Isaiah was, to be sent into your neighborhood, your places of work, your homes, to preach God's message that he is the king seated upon the throne. And he has done everything to bring the world to himself. He is Lord of all. 
I want so badly for each one of you today to catch a fresh vision of the King.